One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human, and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ilian Wu, author of the nonfiction book, Master, Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom. Even if you keep banging your head on the piano, that eventually, uh, eventually I can, I can find my way, writing my way out of this. And usually I found that when I, I got to that wanting to bang my head on the piano phase, it was because I didn't know enough. We'll be back with Ilian Wu after these essential words. Here's what I want to say about pitching for patrons. It's my least favorite thing to do, but it supports my most favorite thing to do. Share this podcast with the world and with you. And so I'm wondering, do you get something out of this? Do you listen more than eight times a year? Is there something of value for you in these episodes? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then why not support this content by becoming a patron of First Draft? You can do that at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Here's the common conversation I have at parties. Okay, I don't really go to parties because I'm always doing this, but this is a common conversation I have about this podcast. So why did you start this, someone asks. I don't really know. I was a radio reporter for years and getting my MFA in fiction, and I missed interviewing people. So I combined these two things and started this show. I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't have a master plan. It just seemed like a fun idea at the time. And I still don't really have a master plan, but it's been 10 years that I've been doing this. So then they asked, do you make money? And the answer is, I have some incredible patrons, but they come and go. And lately, for whatever reason, and this is really vulnerable here, more people have left than joined. I can't pretend to know why, but in exit surveys, they usually say it's for financial reasons and that they really love the content. And I get that. I really get it because there are expenses to make this podcast and financial needs to make this podcast. I will say that every hour I'm working on this is time I'm not spending at a quote unquote paying gig. 
Times have changed since we got our newspapers on our stoops twice a day. You know that. Our content comes from all over the place. But in this case, there isn't an AI behind this, just an I, which is me, Mitzi, all by my lonesome, doing the research, booking the guests, reading their work, conducting the interview, uploading it into the podcast world, and then doing it again and again and again, more than 50 times in the last year. I produce one episode a week, and that is on top of all my other jobs, which is why I don't go to parties or really do anything on the weekends except for this. So if you value this podcast, please consider supporting it with a financial contribution. Membership starts at $6 a month and includes extras like writing tips, cuts that didn't make it into the final show, end of the year thank you gifts, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and more. I think in this world, we have to support what we love, and there is an energy there that comes back to us. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and become a supporter of First Draft today. It still doesn't make a shred of sense that I'm doing this podcast. Still, here I am after a decade. But Rumi said, set your life on fire. Seek those who fan your flames. So I'm inviting you to warm yourself by this fire and bring your fan along. Patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And on to the show. My guest today is Ilian Wu, author of the nonfiction books The Great Divorce, a 19th century mother's extraordinary fight against her husband, the Shakers, and her times, and master, slave, husband, wife, an epic journey from slavery to freedom. Her writing has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, and the New York Times. Master Slave, Husband, Wife was named one of the New York Times 10 Best Books of 2023 and was also named a Best Book of the Year by The New Yorker, Time, NPR, Smithsonian Magazine, and the Chicago Library. Master Slave, Husband, Wife tells the story of Ellen and William Kraft, a married couple who together decide to flee Macon, Georgia in a life of slavery in 1848. Because Ellen, whose father was her mother's slave master, could pass for white, during their escape she was disguised as a white, sickly man traveling north with his loyal slave, who was really her husband, William. Along their journey northward, they dodged slave traders, military officers, and friends of their enslavers to land in New England where they became activists. However, the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act which meant that escaped slaves must be returned to their masters if they were captured, put the crafts in further danger, eventually leading them to travel to England. We began the discussion with Ilian Wu discussing how she first learned about the craft's story in graduate school and why they lingered in her mind for over two decades. They dwelled in my imagination for probably upwards of 20 years before I actually really, really dove in. Um, but, you know, the connection with their story is immediate. And, you know, sometimes you have these really intense reading experiences where you just kind of feel like you're brought into the page. And or for me, it sounds like it, it really is a sound, like hearing the voice of these narrators. At that point, I knew it just as William Craft being the narrator. But hearing that voice in my ear, it was not like anything I'd heard before. It felt really... Um, intimate and close, but it was also, you know, filled with irony and um, terror. And I mean, the range of emotions conjured in this voice just jumped out at me from that first read. And so that's why it really kind of stayed with me all that time. I kept thinking about their story every couple of years. I never imagined I'd write a book about them, but I kept thinking about them especially because as wonderful this as this voice was and as much as I wanted to follow it anywhere and as much as it did tell in such an exciting way, there are all kinds of mysteries that sort of remain to be solved or questions whose answers I really wanted to know. And that's kind of, that is what ultimately drove me to the, to the writing of the book. Can you describe what some of those mysteries were? And I guess what was in that initial reading? What what did you find there? And then what was missing for you? 
Well, the emotional heart of the story really lies in the love and the loss that both William and Ellen Craft experience with their parents. It becomes, I mean, their love with their parents becomes in ways a model for their love with each other and for you know, what they bring into the world. But the losses that they describe, uh, particularly of Williams, is, is devastating. I mean, he has this scene that he recalls where he's being auctioned alongside his younger sister. And he sees her going off in the wagon, being pulled away by a stranger who's just bought her, and there's nothing he can do. And that's the moment sort of light, that lights him on fire. But the image that he gives of his sister um, in this wagon, the eye contact they make, um, and that that moment of just powerlessness and rage that he feels um, after seeing her driven away, uh, that that's that's the moment that sort of emotionally landed with me. But there's so much more behind that we that that they don't reveal in the book. Um, William does talk a bit about his first enslaver. We get a last name, um, but I wanted to know more about: Is there anything more to know about his parents, his siblings? Was he ever able to reconnect with any of them? And the mysteries are even greater for Ellen. We get one sentence in the book where they say. Again, this is in William Craft's voice. You know, my wife's first master was her father and her mother his slave. And the latter is still the slave of his widow. Um, that's pretty much it. We don't get more details in terms of like who the father is, uh, who the mother is, especially uh, we know the father is dead, but we don't know what's happened to the mother. And scholars did begin to tease out some of that. And that was really exciting to come across in the secondary literature. But there were I wanted to know more fully about these people and how they lived and how they ended up, how their experiences ended up becoming compacted in that terrible single sentence that they give us. So was there a moment for you over this 20 years where you were thinking about this and thinking about this, that you just crossed over to the other side and said, I'm doing this? Yes. In fact, that moment, I kind of had to experience that moment again and again, um, because there were many times along the way when I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, what the heck am I doing here? I think the, the, the really big moment that came for me, um, because as I said, I'd been thinking about the story for so long. I've been investigating these questions. Um, I kind of hoped that somebody else would write the book so I could just read it. And then I started finding, like I just started falling into these kind of archival Alice in Wonderland holes. And I was still not 100% sure at, when I was in Macon, Georgia. I was still... Um, you know, I really wanted to know more about the story, but I wasn't sure I was ready to go on this journey. Um, and I wasn't sure how the whether I was meant to be telling the story either. And when I got to Macon, I just kind of was, I was driving and I was talking to myself and I was kind of talking to William and Ellen Craft, and I was just just thinking out loud, I just don't know if this is it. And if I see them, if I see you in the archives, I will move forward. But if there's nothing new here, then maybe I should stop. And then what I found in Macon in those archives just made me like literally sit on the floor of the archives and just kind of have to like read through it because it was tremendous to be able to glimpse them as I did. And that was the big turning point. There were other moments of doubt, other moments of uh, uncertainty later on, but this was the big clincher for taking on the project as a whole. I could see how that you would have to sort of renew your vow again and again, because like <laughs> when you went to Macon and you found whatever, you know, whatever information you found there to start sort of make these people into like living flesh and find the story, you know, they, they had a journey that took them to many other places. So even if you had found a lot about the beginning, you had to keep digging for every stage along the way. So I could see how 
at any point in a story like this where it seemed at least at first that so little is known that you could lose faith because you you needed a whole book. You couldn't just have the beginning of a book. Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, and certainly that those, um, I love that idea of like renewing the vows. And I kind of feel like it happened. I mean, that's the thing that was truly just felt out of this world for me in terms of the research process with this book is that, you know, in the past, I would have these occasional eureka moments at, where things would click together or I'd find something or, you know, I was in a Shaker archive in Canterbury, New Hampshire, and I was looking at these old books and I found like the smoking gun, you know, where the Shakers reveal that they have these kidnapped children in their in their. Uh, uh, dwelling houses. So I could recall like on one hand, those kind of discoveries, maybe all of them up until this book came along. And with this book, it's like almost every time I entered a space, it was like something landed and it felt, um, it felt incredible to see these, the, the history come alive through these fragments of paper, through these voices, through things that had been preserved. Um, yeah, it's unlike anything I've ever experienced in the archives before. I mean, my experience of reading it, it's so meticulously researched. And I really understood as I was reading this that you weren't putting in anything that was guesswork, that you mm -hmm. were relying on what you had. And there were there were things within the book that, you know, maybe the reader wanted to know more about, but they couldn't because you didn't know. And I'm still so curious of how you take all these other sources and put them into a book, but then make the book so full of feeling and life and like flesh. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, thank you very much for that, that, um, that phrase, because that's exactly what I was, I was hoping for is to amass all these details, everything under the iceberg, but yet have the story itself flow. And to be honest, it was a really big struggle. Um, and it's very easy for me to get very deep into the weeds. Uh, and there were a lot of weeds and it took a village to help me clear those weeds and find the story as well. Um, you know, what I think of in terms of like how I wanted it to unfold I actually relied a lot on movies and thinking about movies and how they work. And, and I love, I love movies like, you know, Pinocchio came out, the stop motion uh, in the middle of this whole process um, or maybe towards the end of it actually. And, you know, before that there was a documentary on the Lord of the Rings and like the making of and how they had to like grow, like, you know, they had these images for the Hobbit houses and they had to, they had to like make these mounds and build, you know, build the structures and plant the seeds for the flowers. And you see it like all growing in real time. And I was like, wow, that is totally obsessive. And that's kind of wanted, that's a level of obsession I wanted to bring into the writing. Something where, you know, somebody might not even notice, you know, like, for example, like the the, the golden grasshopper on top of Faneuil Hall, right? That goes by really quick. But I love knowing that, that there was a golden grasshopper weather vane on top of Faneuil Hall that with its sort of, with its glass eyes was kind of, had seen everything from enslaved people being sold right there at Faneuil Hall to, you know, Peter Faneuil himself to um, all the patriots of the revolution to the crafts. And so I, I gave him a little tiny moment and that was like the equivalent of, let's say, I don't know, um, a special flower that somebody grew for the Hobbit house. It was like my one of my favorite things. And you said earlier that you weren't sure if you were the one to tell the story. Can you share more about that? Yeah, I guess it seemed like a really big undertaking to take on the story. You know, one analogy I use a lot, I thought of a lot when writing the book is a tightrope where they are, the crafts are on this incredible live high wire act and they really bring that journey to life, that wire, but there's so much around there, right? Like the pit they could fall into that's beneath, what comes before, what comes after, 
I knew that if I was going to write this book, I was going to, or tell the story, I had to do something that they hadn't done before. And in their, in their narrative, which is the basis for my story, the original source, uh, it's about 60 pages. It has a lot of great scenes. Um, they really sort of bring to life um, the, you know, the fear, um, the love, all these different emotions. Um, and they speak generally of the consequences that they would have faced had they been captured. I felt like if I was going to write the story or whoever was going to write the story, the way I wanted to read it would have to sort of ride on that and create like, basically create sort of the movie experience of it, right? Um, to use their writing as a central melody um, to build a giant score around that. And that the camera, I'm switching analogies here, but like to return to the cinematic analogy, the camera would have to go everywhere, including places they hadn't and including things that nobody wants to see. And for a long while, I wasn't sure I was ready to take that on. Yeah, I think one of the things that struck me the most when I read this is that it's something I know. It's something I think we all know, which is we are so much more affected when we read individual stories that of course we can, you know, sit around and say like slavery was the worst thing that happened to this nation and go off on a diatribe about how terrible it is. But then you you sort of feel it as this sort of rage. But then when you read it about what happens, these individuals and their stories and this family's journey, then you just weep. You just feel it so much deeper. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. Absolutely. Um it's, you know, to read anything in generalized terms, you can sort of separate yourself from it. But I think what literature invites us to do is that it, it, it brings us into the scene, um, into, uh, introduces us to somebody else's uh, way of life, their, um, you know, what they're seeing, hopefully what they're feeling. To conjure all that makes an abstract that much more real and powerful. I mean, that's what I go for when I'm 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 going to to read a book, uh, and which is actually why I prefer reading fiction to to history or nonfiction. I really love to be in an immersive world, um, and I I will you know read the piles of history, very dry history, in order to get the nuggets that I want um, that are going to help me paint the, the life or the world that I'm looking at. But it's the story and it's the people and it's the just total immersion into another world. That's what excites me as a reader. And I guess that's why this is a mode that I've chosen to write in as a you know, narrative nonfiction, something that brings the history, but delivers it through sight and sound and feel and taste and smell and people. So how, how did you get into this line of work? Well, it took a long time, just like the book took a long time. I guess in some ways, I really did want to be a writer ever since I was small. Um, Since I was in grade school, I was writing. But it's not a calling that I I dared to avow. Um, I felt like in some ways, I kind of wanted it so badly that I was afraid to say it. And I didn't want to say it until I had done something. I was doing something. I was in it. And that took a long time um, to have anything that I wanted to share um, and also to find the stories that I really wanted to write. And I took a long detour on the path of graduate school because honestly, I I wasn't going to do a whole PhD program. I just wanted a year to read. I wanted to get to read you know, I was doing a lot of art and drama and, you know, painting and things by the end of college. And I was like, you know what, there are things that I haven't read that I want to read. So let's spend a year doing that. And then in grad school, I met 
the mentor of all mentors, Robert Ferguson, who, you know, I was told if you, if he teaches basket weaving, take that class, like literature of basket weaving, li literature of like coffee cups, like whatever it is, he will show you the world in it. And so because of him, I really sort of stayed with literature for much longer than I would have. Um, but actually my heart was never in writing academic, producing academic writing. And so I always wanted to leave. I just wasn't sure where I was going to go and whether I had the guts to do it. So I guess what happened after I finished my dissertation is I just knew for sure that I couldn't keep writing that way anymore. And I had a fellowship to do a deeper, deeper archival research, but also to help me cut those, I don't know, um, the strings that were attaching it, that, that had me tied to academia. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to go on the job market. I'm going to see where this, if this can become a book. And this is my, that became my first book um, on Eunice Chapman, who fought the Shakers for her children. Ellen and William Craft are really just incredible individuals. You know, it's 1848. As you said, she's the daughter of the slave owner. So her father is white and her mother was black, but she appears very light skinned. She passes for white and her husband cannot. And they are in love and have very limited ability to even see each other because they're owned by different owners and they make this plan to escape. And they basically, their plan is she's going to dress as a frail, sickly white male with bandages and bandage on her arm so she a sling on her arm so she doesn't have to sign her name because she can't read or write and he is her slave and they're traveling together and their original plan I think was to go to Philadelphia and and then to Canada yes they're gonna leave the country and it's just so amazing like how much courage it would take just to even hatch that plan let alone execute it Mm -hmm. And they, they really had a lot of luck on their side. Like when they first got to the first train, the man that um, William worked for, a cabinet maker, had this feeling, like just a feeling that he might be in the train and went to look for him and didn't find him. And then there's uh, someone that vouched for them when they were on the brink of maybe not getting onto their next vehicle. And there's a time when William was asleep on a train when it had to do a crossing and she thought she lost him. So there was so much luck. And I'm, I'm just curious as you embarked on this journey with them, you know, what you learned, like not, not the facts, but like what it brought you to your life. Well, actually, first, I'd love to address that question of luck, because that is something my perception of it changed as I as I got deeper and deeper into their story. And, you know, when you read their original narrative, it really is kind of like, I mean, you're you're at the edge of your seat. I was at the edge of my seat. It's like, what? You can't know. This guy just shows up like what's going to happen? Um, and and each time you're like, oh, thank goodness. And she was so lucky or he was so lucky or this, you know, just seems like such a coincidence. But the more I studied their words, their accounts, um, both in their published narrative and in the stories they told, the more I realized that actually luck was a small part of it. Everything that looked like luck came because they had prepared so thoroughly both in the last four days and in some ways practice their entire lives for that culminating moment. So what reads as coincidence as a, you know, oh my gosh moment, you know, in a movie or something like that actually has many, many, many layers. And one of the things that really interested me the most as I was sort of covering the whole arc of their journey is how they shift their strategies little by little every time and how each crisis moment builds on the next. So they learn something that takes them to the next. And the biggest ones of all, I mean, there, there's almost like a natural thea theatrical arc there, use everything that they've learned in the journey um, and in their lives. 
And that was really beautiful to behold. So yes, they got lucky. I mean, even just the fact that the trains and the boats were running was lucky. I talk about a man named Moses who tried to make an escape in Charleston, and he had himself packed in a box to be mailed into freedom. This is something that Henry Brox Brown was famous for doing actually just a couple months later. But Moses was stuck in a box on a ship, which could have been the one that the crafts took. You know, it's almost exactly, it, 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 they could have been on that ship if they had gone a couple months earlier. So he's stuck in this box on the ship and the ship won't move. You know, there's like bad weather and the ship can't leave Charleston. And so he has to burst from his box. He has to like reach out, you know, there's a newspaper account later describing how he has eating like cake and pomegranate and wine that were gifts in another, you know, another box that was next to him. But we don't know. I mean, that's the thing that's sort of really ghostly and awful about reading these newspaper stories is they tell you that kind of detail, like the pomegranates and the wine, but they don't tell you what happened to Moses. And likely whatever he faced was was not good, was was awful, actually. Um, uh, Moses, in that case, was terribly unlucky. The crafts were incredibly lucky that the vehicles were making it on time. But it really is their mastery of their performance that more than anything else made it possible for them to achieve this escape. And as you were writing this, you knew the facts. Tell me about the feelings. It was a very emotional journey to to follow the crafts and to try to conjure their their feelings, everything that they were eyewitness to in these moments. And again, many of these things were not in the book, but I felt like I kind of needed. So I'll give you an example. So there's all this incredible action they describe in Charleston where Ellen arrives uh, at the Planters Hotel and the hotel manager actually sort of takes her arm and guides her inside. I mean, you have all these moments of sort of packed drama, but the crafts aren't really showing, they're not describing what they're seeing because audiences in this time don't need to have descriptions of you know, like how they're changing trains or whatever. Um, they don't need to see what was outside the Planters Hotel. They don't. They already would have known that at the Charleston Exchange, as it's now known, um, the Custom House, where the crafts are to buy tickets, there's a huge outdoor slave sale. But that's something that I didn't know when I first touched this research. So then when I did all this research into Charleston and I saw, and I looked at the maps and I, and I read these firsthand travelers accounts and I learned that right next to the very building where the crafts go in to buy their tickets, an incredibly fraught moment, you know, they can look out the window and see people being bought and sold. Like they can see the nightmare, the trauma of their childhoods being played right outside. So when I, that was a moment of powerful feeling for me, I guess, in appreciating what they were eyewitness to, the things that they told, but also what they didn't tell. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. 
It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. It's so unfathomable, back to that individual story, how many human beings were just complicit in this institutional act of the history of our country. Like how, I I mean, just, it's phenomenal and fascinating. The dividing line, the North and South, which doesn't mean that everyone in the South believed in it and everyone in the North didn't, it wasn't that clean. But I, I just, I just never know when I think about things like this, what I think of my fellow humans. Yes, it's, um, I mean, the the story of the craft's triumph, um, their success and their their efforts to be free represents sort of the best of humanity. What they were fleeing represents the worst. And one thing that I really did try to take pains to show, you know, because as you say, this is like a national and institutionalized phenomenon is slavery. It's not just that it was just certain bad people, right? We were all complicit in it as a nation, North and South. There was slavery in the North before. There were people who were ready to hunt down the crafts, signing up, young men signing up to help recapture the crafts in the the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act. The the boundary that we draw in our imagination along that Mason-Dixon line it didn't stop slavery from crossing back and forth. Um, It really was, I mean, our whole country was steeped in it. And I think, you know, one thing that I thought about a lot when I was trying to write about the slavers in particular, because I didn't want them just to be caricatures that you can dismiss. I thought about when I was undergrad and I watched the Milgram experiment, During, I think it was World War II, uh, people were like, how could human beings do such wretched, horrible things to each other? And this experiment, as I recall it, and I'm recalling this from actually freshman intro to psych, but it really made an impression on me. The question was, would ordinary Americans make some of this, would they be, so could ordinary Americans make the same kinds of horrific choices as had been made on the other side of the world? Is there something unique about the situation abroad or is this something about human nature? So what happened in this experiment is that they would have these test subjects, they bring them into this room. And I remember this like grainy black and white film and the test subject would sit and be told by this very calm, um, authoritative male voice, there's a button in front of you and it's going to administer a shy, slight shock uh, to somebody who's off camera. So I would like you to press that button. And so the the test subject presses this button. Of course, the button doesn't actually do anything. But in the next room, within hearing distance, you have somebody reacting to this button as it's being pressed. And the reactions become stronger and stronger until it's pretty clear that whoever is reacting to this button is being hurt. And you see the test subject react to this authoritative voice and the voice just says, press the button. And this test subject might be like, but, but, and the voice says, just do it. And they do. And that was the thing that was so shocking and about this whole experiment is that how many people would just do as they were told um, because this voice of authority told them that they had to do it. In fact, it was all imaginary, right? But it was real in the moment to the person and the person made that choice. And I think it was astonishing to people for people to see the results of this. And I think it brings home the idea that it's really hard to judge another person. It's hard to judge what you would do in that situation because you just don't know. Um, so for me, the lesson of the Milgram experiment was just, instead of trying to bring my own judgment upon the people I was writing about, 
to try to lay them out as fully as I could, as I can, as human beings, and let the reader interpret as he or she wishes or as they wish. I do remember learning about that experiment. I mean, it's just, it's so, humans are so fascinating. Like on some levels, we're so fragile fragile and breakable. And then on other levels, you know, you look at the crafts and they were just, they were so strong and they weren't just, you know, making this escape. They were incredibly brave because they became activists. They were totally visible to the world. They had articles written about them. They gave speeches, you know, across this continent and Europe. They they didn't just make it to freedom and live a quiet life. They had so much conviction and that pretty much like doubled their danger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, just as they're at every high stakes moment in their journey, they are raising the stakes even higher, um, just as they're learning and they're improvising and they're pushing on that original journey to the north. They do that really to the end of their days. But it is astounding that moment of choice that they face when they get to the north. They can rename themselves. They can go underground. Their original plan was to go to Canada. They could do anything at that point. And they choose to stay and they choose to stay and tell their story. And they choose to stay and tell their story with their actual names so that people can track them down if they want to. They enter these halls of like hundreds and then like thousands of people where you don't know who's going to be right in front of you there. Anybody could be there. Uh, They know that their enslavers have lots of contacts in the North. There is already a Fugitive Slave Act in you know, in the books. Um, Of course, it gets even worse after 1850, but their slavers have the right to come and seize them at that point. So they're putting everything on the line. I mean, they're putting their lives on the line again and again and again to the very end. It's astonishing what they do. Did you know that the title was going to be Master Slave, Husband, Wife? That came actually pretty early on. I I was playing around with different things. I mean, I do love the the title of the original work, Running a Thousand Miles to Freedom. There's another book, a children's book called Running at 5,000 Miles to Freedom, because really when you tally the miles, not just from Macon to the north, but all the way overseas, it is 5,000 miles. But I wanted something that was going to be kind of boundary breaking. I knew I didn't didn't want to write a biography, so it wasn't going to be like, you know, the biography of of Eleanor William Craft. I wanted something that represented everything, the categories that they were breaking down. And so I just remember sort of playing around with these terms like master slave, black, white, husband, wife, man, woman. And it just kind of came to me that master slave, husband, wife. And I liked the rhythm of it. You know, yum, ba, bum, ba, ba, bum. It just felt like it, it felt... Um, it had a good beat. And the original subtitle I loved as well, and I still love it. It's an American love story. So it was going to be Master Slave, Husband, Wife, an American Love Story. And I liked the rhythm of that. But pretty late in the publishing game, uh, uh, my publisher was saying that we need something that gestures at the, at the, at the, at the big sort of plot contours of the story. And that's why we changed it to an epic journey from slavery to freedom. But I hung on to master slave, husband, wife, that wasn't going to change. They actually wanted it to be at one point they were like, how about master and slave husband and wife? But if you kind of sing that, it's like, bum, 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 rather than bum, 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 bum. And I wanted that, you know, staccato rhythmic beat. So a work like this that you've been thinking about for 20 years before you start writing it, and I don't know how long it took you to actually write it, and then now it's out in the world and outside of you. How do you, like, is there one thing that you'll take away from this? Like, and then how do you let something like this go? The takeaway, that's a really good question. You know, the one thing I keep thinking about is um, the just in terms of the creative process, 
Have you seen Sesame Street where there's a character named Don Music who's a, he plays these songs on the piano and Kermit the Frog introduces him and he says, you know, here we are in the studio of Don Music and he's going to invent this. He's in the process of writing this incredible song. It's going to be a hit. It's called, you know, it has to do with, and, and Don Music is like starting to, to write a song, which is obviously Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but he gets stuck because he can't rhyme something or he loses a word. And he's like, I'll never get it. I'll never get it. And then he bangs his whole head and his hands and his face on the, on the piano. For me, being a pianist's daughter, this seemed like the ultimate, you know, I mean, you just don't bang a piano, right? So there was that, but there was also that like frustration that I could sort of, you know, uh, empathize with when you're trying to do something and it just doesn't work. You just want to throw everything down. Maybe my takeaway as an artist is, is to, is, is to know now how, <laughs> how even if you keep banging your head on the piano that eventually, uh, eventually I can find my way, writing my way out of this. And usually I found that when I, I got to that wanting to bang my head on the piano phase, it was because I didn't know enough. It wasn't, it was because I was trying to force something when I wasn't ready to get there. And if I could pull back for a moment and do a little more research around it, then something would pop open. And luckily I have my own real life Kermit, um, my writing partner, Rachel Kauser, who, who would, you know, pat me on the back and also say, isn't it time to like peel your face and fingers from that keyboard? <laughs> um, and then how do you let it go? How do you let it go? Well, to be honest, I, I haven't let it go yet. I am still in it. Um, I am speaking a lot about the story. I never imagined to be speaking as much as I have. I've, I've been speaking really all year with the exception of July. And I'm going to be speaking through May. And this is another a chance to tell the story off the page in, in ways that are actually pretty exciting. I have, you know, the crafts have incredible visual artifacts that they've left. There are all sorts of pictures and um, sort of experiences that didn't make it into the book that I can bring when I'm lecturing or when I'm speaking or when I'm in a classroom. So there's that. And also, you know, you asked before about sort of the balance between doing all that research and getting all those details and also moving this story forward. Well, there's a lot of stuff and in terms of archival material um, on that was left on the cutting room floor. There, there's tons of information about each of the people who um, featured in the end papers, the end papers in the hardback, but were, which are also due to popular demand uh, included in the paperback, which is out now. And I'm in the process of creating a digital end paper project where you can actually, so you'll be able to see the end papers on the website or even on your phone, hover over each of the individual characters and dive in with me. So what I couldn't include in the book or what I think might open doors for more research, I'm going to lay it out all there online. So that's a continuation of the story. So I'm still in it. <laughs> we'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? It was really hard. Actually, to the end, I was like, which one, you know, um, and that's just the top of the pile. But this is one that I've been thinking a lot about that is, that ties to how I've tried to approach parts of my book. So the passage that I choose is from Hernan Diaz's In the Distance. And I know that you've had him as a guest on your show before. I, I really love that interview. So this occurs on page 12, very early into the story. And when we first meet, and I'm going to mispronounce the main character's name. I actually asked Hernan how to pronounce the name. 
And I just remember it thinking, oh, it sounds Korean. So I'm going to say it as I remember it, but I don't think this is it. So I'll call him Hagyeon because that's what it's that's what it sounded like to me. So this main character and his brother Linus are at the start of this journey to get to New York. And we meet them at this early stage of their travel. The brother is just movingly close. The brother is just a couple of years older than um, Hagyan, as I'm calling him. And he's the one, as actually we learn at the top of the page, Hagyan trusted this brother um, without reservation, that he most likely would have died without Linus, who already always made sure to, that he had enough to eat and keep the house warm where their parents are away. So that's not my passage, but that's just to give you a little bit of background. And this is the start of their journey, which they're making without the parents. So this younger brother is wide-eyed with his brother, and they're arriving in a place called Portsmouth. So I'll start reading from here. They arrived in Portsmouth much later than expected, and everyone was in a great hurry to get on the rowboats that took them to shore. As soon as Hagyon and Linus set foot on the wharf, they were sucked in by the currents of people bustling up and down the main road. They walked side by side, almost jogging. Now and then, Linus turned to his brother to teach him something about the oddities around them. Both of them were trying to take in all, oh sorry, both of them were trying to take it all in as they looked for their next ship, which was to leave that very afternoon. Merchants, incense, tattoos, wagons, Fiddlers, steeples, sailors, sledgehammers, flags, steam, beggars, turbans, goats, mandolin, cranes, jugglers, baskets, sailmakers, billboards, harlots, smokestacks, whistle, organ, weavers, hookahs, peddlers, peppers, puppets, fistfight, cripples, feathers, conjurer, Monkeys, soldiers, chestnuts, silk, dancers, cockatoo, preachers, hams, auctions, accordionist, dice, acrobats, belfries, carpets, fruit, clotheslines. Hagen looked to his right and his brother was gone. I just get a chill even every time I read this because I remember getting to this list of things that this younger brother was taking in and sort of for just the moment looking away from his older brother who was explaining and they're on this journey and I and I remember thinking what a bewitching list of things and just making myself linger on each thing and imagining because it was so wondrous the spectacle like little things being strung in front of me so that when I got to the end, when I got to the carpets, fruit, clotheslines, I was utterly unprepared for that older brother to be gone. You know, it's like I'd been looking at all these nouns, at these gorgeous little nouns, and then how did I miss that brother? It happened while I was enjoying those nouns, just like Haikyan was enjoying these new sights, these dazzling sights that caused him. I felt so bereft. I felt like, I felt like the brother had been stolen from me. I felt a little piece of what Hagen must have felt in that moment. It was a moment of just radical convergence into the point of view of this character. And I love this passage for how Stunningly, it evokes loss. I mean, how do you represent loss? How do you represent losing the thing, the one thing in the world that matters, one person in the world who matters most to you? And I feel like I felt feel like you know, Anon did it in a way that I hadn't ever seen before. In some ways, it kind of harkened back to I was thinking of modernists and how they tried to represent loss in the wake of you know war as they had never beheld it before, you know, World War I, where people were being destroyed and lives were stolen in ways that they couldn't have even fathomed. And I thought about 
a moment in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I don't remember too much about that book, but I remember that her daughter dies inside of hair of parentheses. You don't even you don't have a long description of how her child has disappeared or the childbirth that she went through. There are parentheses that just announce through having been deceased. And it's brutal. When you read that on the page, you're like, my gosh, look at what these parentheticals contain. And for me, it's like the ordinariness and sort of the sidewaysness of that being represented that brought home the vastness of that loss. And Anon takes it another step further. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you really like? The opening of the book is one that I wrote and rewrote many times. And I actually had a terrible draft where I I started the book an entirely different way. But the passage that I would point to happens at the end of the first scene where we see William and Ellen Craft in their cabin behind the mansion where the enslavers live, um, the Collinses, and where they're just about getting ready to leave. So I guess what what I struggled with in representing this moment, which they do describe in their narrative, is that it, it goes by very fast in the narrative. And so what happens, in the, as, as they tell it in the narrative, is they're just about to leave. And, you know, William's about to open the door and Ellen bursts into tears. And she sort of shrinks back as he tells it. Um, And then she kind of, and they're thinking about the high stakes of what could happen to them if they're captured. And then Ellen um, shakes off the crying, as he says, and prays, and then they move on. So in the original account, it. Ellen has a a very sort of passive role, and this happens a number of times throughout the book where she's passive or bursting into tears and where William is sort of stepping forward as the guy who has to kind of take charge. The more I read about both of them and their interactions and descriptions of them, the more it became clear that they needed to tell the story a certain way and that Ellen was no shrinking violet. And so what I wanted to do in the passage was to write it in a way that centered her. So this is the description. So I do start with spooked Ellen bursts into tears because I think that there's some, they, they've seen something outside. Um, they'd borne witness to people torn by bloodhounds, beaten and branded, burned alive. They had seen the hunts, the frenzy around a slave chase. All this they know might be in store for them. They draw back in, holding each other one more time. And then I describe the routes that they have to take and what they might face um, at the hands of their enslavers, um, how Ellen might have been spared, but this was going to be different. And then this is the moment that I want to bring attention to. Now silent, Ellen centers herself in prayer and the faith that she will move by as she battles for mastery over every inch of the 1,000 miles to come. Faith in a power greater than any earthly master, such as she will pretend to be. Stilled, she owns the moment. Come, William, she speaks. Once more, the door opens. The two step out, their footfalls soft, like light on water. William turns the lock, pockets the key, a drop of metallic weight. They creep across the yard to the street near the house of the sleeping slavers. With a touch of hands, they part. When they next meet, or so they hope, they will take their places as master and slave, escaping to reunite as husband and wife. Do you want to say any more about that? Well, I guess I feel like what I can do, and going back to this question of what I can do for the crafts, is, and this is one of the greatest powers of writing, is that you can stop time. You can stop time for a moment and you can linger, or you can change the camera gaze, turn it not in, just inside the cabin, not at the disguise, but at Ellen in this moment where she is 
gaining strength from her faith. And I wanted to show the scope of that, show how that eclipses the world of the masters, right? So that's why I use the word mastery in there. Um, I wanted to slow down with her for us to know that she's important and that she's gaining power in this moment and that she's learning. And the faith comes back in another incredible moment, like a, a real sort of um, edge of your seat moment in Baltimore. She's going to build on this faith. And so this passage sort of rhymes with that one. I guess the last thing that I would say is that it's so helpful. It was how essential it was for me to have readers also look at this writing. And one of my dear friends, Nikaila Ridley, pointed out in my in an earlier draft, I have the crafts shaking hands at the at the cabin because that's what they say in their book. And she said, shaking hands like toodaloo, you know, it just seemed like a very kind of, I don't know, a weird uh moment that was not the it it generically sort of takes you out of that moment. So I changed the wording because I thought about like the fact is that they they were touching hands at that mo at that moment, but I can say touch hands instead of shake hands to recreate the gesture but give it a different kind of meaning, and that also comes back. Where do you write? I can write anywhere. I like to write in a small enclosed space, ideally my study, with earplugs in, even if it's quiet. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't know that I'm ever trying to get away from writing. I guess sometimes, no, that's not true. I guess there are times when I need to sort of pull myself away to give, um, to regain breath. And I think one of the best ways that I've known how uh, is through physical exercise. So I run and that's one way in which my mind actually does return to the writing. Sometimes I just solve things in there, but it's sort of going in and out and it's getting vigor into the experience. But the other thing that I do and that I did throughout the writing of this book is yoga. And the reason why this applies, especially with a really great teacher who's very hands-on is on the mat, you're putting your body into awkward positions or uncomfortable positions, as the yoga teachers will always say. And you're trying to figure out how to breathe through that. And there's this one yoga teacher that I have in particular who she would demonstrate these poses where I think I can't, there's no way I can do that. But then she would put it into small enough pieces that I could do it little by little. And I could do things that I was scared to do that I didn't think that I could ever do before. And when my body learned that, then I could come back to the page and try to do the same thing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? That's an easy question. I have a beloved and wonderful writing partner who actually also used to be both a running partner and a yoga buddy named Rachel Kauser. Um, she is the first one to read. We actually started our books together. She has a great book coming out about, it's called Alexander at the End of the World. It's coming out this July. She was researching Alexander and actually she was having so much fun with that, that that's part of the reason why I was like, you know, maybe I do want to go on a narrative journey. But this, our partnership started a number of years ago when I felt like I wanted I wanted the same thing that I get in running, where you're running with somebody who, even if your energy is flagging, that you're sort of inspired by them and they inspire you, you inspire them. She wanted the same thing. So we started by saying, if we could just crank out three pages of anything um, or even like a scrawl on the page, we would text each other, done. And then the other person would say, great job. It feels so good to get that great job that that kept me going, you know? So every day I still do this. I'll say done and she'll say brava or she'll say done and I'll say brava or the whole book will be done. I'll say brava to each other. But it, that stretched out from just being like sort of pinging in daily dates to reading dates and check-ins every other week. And I couldn't have written this book without her. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection is always hard, and I guess my way to deal with it is to think back to this mentor of mine from Columbia University, um, the late Robert Ferguson, 
he gave the best advice I feel like I've ever gotten, which is it's a variation to keep going, but have something ready. Always have something ready in your back pocket. So he would say, assume that you're going to send this out. In this case, this would be a um, an essay that I wrote for a publication. Send it out. Have it ready to go somewhere else so that when it comes back, and you're not going to expect that to come back in the positive, as soon as that rejection comes back, you've already got it waiting to go out to another place. So there's never expectation, any expectation that it's going to land. So when it does land, you're astonished and you're really happy. And if it doesn't, it's just part of your day and you send out the next one and you keep moving because that's the work. What is your favorite word? If I had to choose a single favorite word, it would be what my children call me, which is Amma. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so honored. Oh, the honor and the pleasure is mine. If you like today's show with Ilion Wu, author of Master Slave, Husband, Wife, check out my interview with Patina Gappa, author of Out of Darkness, Shining Light. We talked about the true story of the African men and women who carried explorer and missionary David Livingston's body across the continent of Africa, transitioning from law to fiction and using archival letters and journals to craft her novel. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 440 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sloan Crosby, Leslie Jameson, and Kava Akbar. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft, a dialogue on writing, a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>